Hey, Elizabeth, I've been thinking about Madeline Pryor. Yeah, she's really great in this era. Right, but I've specifically been thinking about how she gets powers in the X-Men and Alpha Flight miniseries. That's the only time she did, right? Oh, not even close. Her psychic powers started to manifest when she was captured in Genosha, telepathy and telekinesis. Like Jean Grey's powers? Exactly. She found out from Sinister that she was a seemingly powerless clone of Jean who had been awakened by a shard of the Phoenix Force. What? And then also got demonic reality-warping powers after being broken by that revelation. Oh, right, the whole Goblin Queen thing. Worst costume ever or worst costume ever? You mean when she was queen of the underboob? I mean, underworld? Worst costume ever. That was it, though, right? I mean, she died in Inferno right after, and... Well, later on, she came back from the dead a few times. Once as the Red Queen, who seemed to have magical powers in addition to the psychic stuff. Once in the body of a former Lady Deathstrike host, where she was just psychic again. And once as a psionically constructed astral ghost. Ghost? Well, sort of. Eventually, it turned out she was really an evil incarnation of Jean Grey from an alternate universe. What?! I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 47th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So Rachel's out this week, and I am joined by Elizabeth Alley, former senior marketing manager of Things for Another World. Which is a brick-and-mortar and online comic book retailer with locations in Oregon, California. Find it online at tfaw.com. Sorry, uh, old habits die hard. <laughs> I believe it. Um, yeah, we used to uh, work together when Elizabeth was at, uh, at TIFA. I do support for Dark Horse and for TIFA. And Miles saved me many, many times. I, I do what I can when I'm not, you know, busy explaining the X-Men. <laughs> um, so, Elizabeth, I know you've been an X-Men fan for a good long time, right? Yep. I was introduced to the X-Men when I was 14 on vacation in Hawaii when my brother brought to our uh, condo some uh, X-Men comics. What era was that? It was, so it was really strange. It was the classic. X-Men reprints, which was John Byrne. It was when they were fighting Proteus right before the Dark mm-hmm, Phoenix. Mm-hmm. But the, the same era was this weird Rob Liefeld one-shot, which is Men, which is uh, <laughs> the X-Men in uh, Australia like fighting all kinds of aliens. So I was completely lost and yet I was completely transfixed. And as soon as we got back from Hawaii, I found our local comic shop. Uh, lost and transfixed? I feel like that's pretty much the, <laughs> the space you spend most of your time in as an X-Men fan, no matter who you are. Okay, so this time we're going to be talking about a two-part miniseries that came out at the end of 1985, and that's X-Men and Alpha Flight. Yes. So this takes place between the middle and end of X-Men 192. So it's right after the Kitty Pride and Wolverine mini and right before uh, Charles Xavier is mugged and apparently killed. This is also midway through the Alpha Flight stream and when Guardian has been killed, Heather is taking over the team. A lot of them are kind of breaking down psychologically and yeah, they all meet up and fight. And so yeah, Guardian, that's uh, James McDonald Hudson. I'd actually forgotten he died because I know he later comes back like a couple of times. Yeah, he comes back, but it's not really him. Guardian was kind of an odd character. He was like a weird amalgam of like Reed Richards, Iron Man, and Captain America. You know, he was the scientist. He like built lots of robots. He was that do-gooder. And yet with all of those things smashed together, he was still completely boring. So it's like they kind of killed him and he almost kind of died by his own hubris because his costume malfunctioned. And it was far more interesting to kind of thrust his wife, Heather, into the leader role. Yeah, so at the time, I know on the X-Men side of things, so Storm, she's off in Africa, like, doing the stuff that'll lead up to Life Death 2 that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nightcrawler's still leading the team and still being a not terribly effective leader. Yeah, and that's one thing I thought was really interesting here. Like, he mentions that he's the leader here once, and then he barely has anything to do in this miniseries. It's kind of mentioned, and then you never talk about it ever again. Right, he just teleports around in a couple of fight scenes and has a couple lines, and that's about it. There's a Marvel Age article about this where they're talking about how they're introducing a new three-dimensional team called the Berserkers who are supposed to be big players in the Marvel Universe. These are the people who are on the flight who are transformed by this magical fountain into super beings who are literally each designated by one thing about themselves, kind of the opposite of a three-dimensional characters. Yeah, and we'll get more into sort of their origin and what their deal is as we dive into the story, but um, needless to say, they did not really become major players of the Marvel Universe. No, I couldn't find any sort of uh, reference to them anywhere on the internet. Right. 
So on the X-Men side, we have Professor Xavier, uh, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Rogue, Colossus, Shadowcat, and uh, Rachel Summers, who's still relatively new to the team at this point. Yes, and in an awful flight, we have Heather Hudson, Shaman, Sasquatch, Northstar, Aurora, Snowbird, Puck, and Talisman, who's uh, Shaman's daughter, who's recently joined the team. We've seen most of these characters before when the X-Men and Alpha Flight have met up. There was once when they first appeared when they were trying to get Wolverine to come back because he basically just ditched in Giant Size X-Men number one to go join the X-Men. They're like, hey, we paid a lot of money for you and for your silly costume. Come on, dude. Yeah, in addition to that, James and Heather were both kind of upset because not only did he ditch Alpha Flight, but he kind of broke up their little family. Plus, Wolverine has a long documented history of lusting after unavailable redheaded women. Right, it's like Namor with blondes. They should start a support group. Um... And then the other time was actually when Wolverine and Nightcrawler, uh, shortly after the death of Jean Grey, went to help Alpha Flight out when they were having a Wendigo problem. Yes, exactly. They all banded together and kind of came to terms with each other during that set, too. Listeners, if you're ever having any kind of a family drama or trauma, <laughs> just fight Wendigo. It'll exactly. bring you right back together. It'll, exactly. it'll heal the wounds yep, and yep. also give you new wounds. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this series, it's called X-Men and Alpha Flight, which is like the most generic name ever. I guess they used to do that back in the day. There was X-Men Avengers. X-Men Fantastic Four, but I always think of the story by the name of the story itself, which is The Gift, Part 1 and 2. I didn't even read this until a few years ago because X-Men Alpha Flight, it just sounded so bland. Mm -hmm. Looking at the covers, I didn't even realize that was Madeline Pryor on the cover. Yeah, it's just sort of generic redheaded Asgardian lady. I would kind of put this one along the lines of Beauty and the Beast, as much as it's way less weird than Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. One of those series that not a lot of people have read, but pretty much every X-Men fan should. Especially with Paul Smith and Claremont back together, I always thought that was just a really nice team. And especially with Madeline, since she was introduced under Paul Smith, like to me, that look with like the bangs and her being a pilot, she's really strongly identified with that creative team. Rachel and I have said this before, but for an artist that was on the X-Men for such a short amount of time, Paul Smith was really definitive. I know mm -hmm. Rachel has said that he's really her definitive X-Men artist, period. I would put him as number two behind John Byrne, of course. Mm -hmm. Entirely reasonable. <laughs> yeah, as from what I recall, the series originally was going to be Byrne and Claremont, right? John Byrne and Chris Claremont both wanted to do it. John Byrne was too busy. He was already doing Fantastic Four and several other things, so he just didn't have the time for it. Claremont was also very busy at the time, but he ended up being able to make the time to put it together. Right, because this is Chris Claremont, and if there was going to be an X book, he wanted to write it. So, yeah, I guess we'll go ahead and just sort of dive into what happens in this miniseries. All right. Scott and Madeline, you know, they're working with Scott's uh, grandparents running this private airline, and they're faring kind of an environmentalist Canadian group around uh, to the Arctic Circle. And I love this era because Scott and Madeline, you know, they're trying to just be normal people. Mm -hmm. they're, they've gotten married. Scott's quit the X-Men. He's no mm -hmm. longer a Cyclops. Mm -hmm. And yet every single time we see them, there's some kind of big super something going on. It reminds me of when Polaris and Havoc used to be like, we're going to go off and be students. Right. You just you just can't catch a break. If your last name is Summers or if you're involved with someone with a last name is Summers, <laughs> like good luck ever going shopping without the juggernaut attacking. Exactly. And I love these characters because we're introduced to them and they just immediately want to tell Cyclops everything about themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's this dude, Paul Dominic, and he's like an architect. And he's, you know, he and Scott are making small talk. And Scott's like, yeah, they're beautiful about his drawings. And the guy's like, not really, not compared to what they could be if our reality was bound by the laws of magic instead of science. Like, <laughs> oh, well, uh, cool. Would you like some club soda, sir? <laughs> then you meet Sam working in the cargo hold. Oh, have you ever read an Ursula K. Le Guin novel, The Lathe of Heaven? It's about a fellow whose dreams alter reality. The other guy uses him and the dream to try to abolish all the world's ills. Trouble is, the more good he does, the worse everything gets. Wishing's fine, son, but some things, the really important ones, I figure, have to be earned. Otherwise, they mean nothing. It's like, oh, okay, uh, good talk, Sam. Uh, let me know if you need any help with those crates. So obviously, this is heavy-handed foreshadowing for some of the stuff that's going to be addressed later, which, you know, Claremont was no stranger to that, and I, I have no objections to the fact that he did so. But it also kind of reminds me of like in a in a video game RPG where you're walking around town and just talking to all the NPCs and they're like, hey, let me tell you all about the mountains. Exactly. I'm really excited about these mountains and that's all I'm going to talk about. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Nice to meet you. But again, I mean, Scott is probably used to every time he opens the door, a supervillain attacking, he's probably also used to every single thing a random passerby tells him being full of portent. So they're stuck in this crazy weather. The engines catch fire. Scott remembers weather that forced their plane down when they met Alpha Flight. There's a big flash of light, and they're forced down. 
And then it just sort of cuts away. Suspense. They're dead forever. We never see them again. The end. Or alternately. So we always talk about the Danger Room intro as an X-Men concept. And of course we get one here. This one's a little bit different, though. Instead of like going through the Danger Room and having each of the X-Men use their powers and sort of introduce themselves, mm-hmm. we see everything basically go to hell almost immediately. Rachel gets hit with a side flash of her father in danger. She loses control, makes the Danger Room replicate her days of future past past with her as the hand. Yeah, and I think this is the um, the first time the X-Men have explicitly seen what that future looked like, and also the first time they've explicitly seen her role in it, right? Yes, this is the first time that they've discovered that she's a hound who was forced to basically hunt down all her friends and family members and kill them. The thing that strikes me the most, of course, is that the X-Men never realize that the Danger Room is a terrible idea, much like Star Trek The Next Generation of the holodeck. Nothing good comes of going on the holodeck. So nothing good comes of the danger room. You go in the danger room, it will eventually try to kill you. Right. It's going to malfunction in some heretofore unseen capacity that's just going to be both uh, thematically appropriate and murderous. Mm-hmm. So Rachel is completely unstable, out of control. She has an immediate disproportionate response to her father being in danger. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of a theme we'll see a lot with Rachel Summers in this era, which, you know, I can't really blame her. She's been through the worst shit of pretty much anybody who's ever been affiliated with the X-Men. Basically a survivor of a horrific concentration camp where she's been forced to turn against her friends and families thrust back into a past where everything seems hunky-dory except oops her mother is dead and her father has no idea who she is it's not really surprising that she gets upset periodically and given that she is a ridiculously powerful psionic mutant that when she gets upset stuff goes wrong xavier does his best to calm her down she's projecting a vision of what happened to scott and madeline plus a burning scott staggering out of a plane yeah and here i just have to point out that Rachel has almost the worst and most embarrassing costume in this miniseries. It's literally a long-sleeved, high-cut, black leotard with thigh-high red leg warmers. It's pretty much like she just left her dancer size class and popped by the danger room. And she wears this outfit the entire time. Again, you know, dark future. I can't fully blame her for not being a fashionista. But it's like, (laughs) you'd think at least Kitty would say something like, oh, Rachel, honey, can we talk? It's not even a costume. And that's actually uh, something we see a lot with specifically Rachel Summers and Rogue in this era. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, pretty much every issue they're wearing something different with rachel it's almost universally terrible yes but with rogue it's always great it's like some sort of black and green variation of some weird semi-clothing semi-superhero outfit Mm -hmm. um and eventually she'll you know settle on the one that she wears for a long time that kind of green ripped up shirt and the black bodysuit and the belts and stuff rogue knows her strengths and she plays to them she's like green looks good on me let's go to briefly tangent away, not that this show ever does that, <laughs> there's a lot of talk of superhero supervillain color theory with mm-hmm. superheroes using primary colors, you know, red, blue, yellow, and mm-hmm. supervillains using secondary colors, green, purple, orange, I guess. You'll have characters who are sort of on the edge, like, say, the Hulk or, like, Rogue, that'll incorporate some of those colors into their look. Because, you know, the Hulk is this scary character. Rogue's been a supervillain. So I always enjoy seeing that. Yeah, that totally makes sense for Rogue's past. Seeing as she used to be a supervillain, she accidentally consumed Carol Danvers for several decades. You know, Mm -hmm. she's she's on the cusp. So, yeah, we've been introduced to our X-Men. So now it's uh, time to talk about the other people who are in the title. So we cut to them. So meeting Alpha Flight, we've got Shaman, who is their magic man, as well as a doctor, who is examining Sasquatch, Walter, who's having trouble uh, controlling himself in beast form. He's going through these berserker rages. So he's there for a checkup in his tidy whities Aurora, his girlfriend, is, is there. As Shaman leaves, she decides it's time for sexy times. Sasquatch, his deal is he went through like a gamma radiation experiment that sort of hulkified him, but in a very Canadian fashion. And later on, I think it's revealed that he actually trades bodies with one of the great beasts of the North. Yeah, that was a very strange retcon of his character. He's led a number of incarnations of Alpha Flight as the characters have gotten repeatedly killed off and resurrected. Yep, He's yep, sort of yep. been the one to stick around a lot of the time. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but yeah, and then Aurora, so her deal is she has sort of the comic book equivalent of dissociative identity disorder, more commonly known as multiple personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And kind of like with Legion, it's really completely completely scientifically inaccurate but you know she was raised by nuns and when she discovered her powers she was attacked by nuns and chastised for it and told that she was sinful so she basically has a split personality she has this very reserved timid jean-marie personality and then she has this very sexy out of control personality known as aurora 
I feel like she and Rain Sinclair should hang out and just talk about their terrible, overly religious upbringings. <laughs> the interesting thing about reading this with kind of a more modern sensibility, though, what strikes me is that there's a clear consent issue since Walter is having sex with Aurora when her split personality, Jean-Marie, clearly cannot stand him. Later on, when she's in the Jean-Marie persona, she clearly says to let go of her and that she wants to leave. The major question is, why doesn't anybody get her to therapy? I don't know, Alpha Flight, it seems like they all have a lot going on in various directions, be they mystical or psychological or whatever. Yes, they're definitely a conflicted team. They're all kind of a a group of people who each have kind of a deep inner conflict and kind of an insecurity about who they are as heroes. It it reminds me a little bit of uh, some incarnations of Doom Patrol in that regard, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they're all hanging out and having their, their team drama. When Snowbird staggers in, not in good shape, being attacked by Rachel Summers. Of course, she has assumed that Alpha Flight has killed her father, so she goes in and hits them low and hard. Very first thing she does is sense that Aurora has two personalities, and she then forces the Jean-Marie personality out, who is the one who refers to the Aurora personality as a shameless trollop. Yeah, some of the dialogue is, <laughs> is great there. So she's immediately like, what am I doing in this horrible costume? Get away from me. And her accent gets like super Claremont exaggerated <laughs> yeah. when this happens. Yeah, it's better than what I just did. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's different. I don't know about better. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so Rachel basically attacks the team. And of course, she's she's ridiculously powerful. Yes. And so she, you know, has a shaman's medicine bag, start devouring Heather's arm. Yep. So at this point, the X-Men show up, having been chasing Rachel. The two teams just start to fight because they don't really know what's going on. And that's what you do when you're in a superhero comic. Uh, Northstar is attacking Rogue, and she does what she normally does and kisses him. I know his joys, his pain, his dreams and terrors, all of his secrets. Obviously, we know in the modern context that North Star is gay. At this time, that was not explicit. I think mm-hmm. you could certainly read between the lines and see it. Like, most of it manifests just as him having a dark secret. But to be fair, North Star is also just kind of a misanthropic jerk. So, I mean, I can see anything he does being dark. Yeah, he's touchy. He's private. He doesn't like anybody telling him what to do. You have this character, Rogue, who's also very much been an outsider, judged by a lot of the people around her. This is uh, the beginning of something we're going to see throughout this story, this sort of grudging camaraderie, grudging more on North Star's part than Rogue's, Mm -hmm. that starts to form, which I really enjoy. So, yes, pretty quickly, uh, Xavier shows up to kind of get things under control. And so when I say that Rachel has the second worst costume in this story arc, it's because Xavier has the worst costume. He is wearing one of the classic black and yellow X-Men costumes, and it's cringe-inducing. It's basically like Walter White in his tidy whities Yeah, I mean, I feel like this works well with sort of younger teenage student-style characters, but when your strangely beefy, bald mentor is running around wearing this, it just does not sit right. I completely agree. What is he doing? Cosplaying the original X-Men? Like, it just seems strange. But anyway, he does manage to calm things down a little bit, and the two teams are actually able to, to talk it out and figure out what's going on. Snowbird says that she was struck down by the energy from Ungaway Bay, and the X-Men have been following mutant presence from that vicinity, so they all team up to figure it out. Meanwhile, Loki is talking to those who sit above in shadow, which if you don't know who they are, they are basically the Asgardian gods gods. They show up here and there throughout uh, mostly, obviously, Thor's uh, comic, but specifically the Thor disassembled story, which um, ended up killing Thor for a number of years before he came back in J. Michael Straczynski's run. Mm. They were critical to that, because Thor realized that they were basically just toying with the Asgardians, making all these cycles of Ragnarok, and he's like, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm going to end the world for good. Ha! (laughs) And they were like, oh man, our toys. Oh, that sucks. Okay. Fine. We'll just be giant space Vikings on our own then. (laughs) They've charged Loki to do a good deed for the people of Midgard, and prove himself worthy so they can grant him the power to uh, bring peace to Earth. Yeah, and so he's like, well, okay, if that's if that's the good deed, let's do this. I'll prove myself worthy. I will, you know, get this wish, which I'm not going to specify. And in the series, it's not really clear why he's doing this other than to get, I don't know, what power? Yeah, I mean, I assume it's Loki. He wants some sort of extra power or favor from the gods or something, but they don't say, like, we're going to give you X, Y, or Z. It's all very vague. But yeah, this actually is taking place a little bit after the story in Thor, where there has been one of these many Ragnaroks, and he's teamed up with Odin and Thor to fight Surtur, the, the giant fire demon god. Um, I've read a lot of Thor, guys. I really like Thor. And yeah, so this is basically the most heroic Loki's ever been, but that's Mm -hmm. only saying so much, as as we'll see. Well, and he's immediately turning it around and being like, I'm heroic, give me stuff. 
So the heroes are flying in Puck's vintage plane, and Nightcrawler, of course, is wearing an amazing hat for no apparent reason. Yeah, it's like this this sort of uh, stereotypical pilot's hat, and, and we've seen that before, right? Yeah, he also wore a captain's hat and scarf to kidnap Amanda Septon while they were fighting the dire race. And it's like, what? I spent money on this hat. I'm going to wear it. If there's anything even remotely airplane or airport related, I will be in this hat. That's all there is to it, guys. <laughs> So, of course, there's a lot of tension between Rachel and Aurora because of the way Rachel, you know, violated Aurora's mental health and also between the teams in general. Logan's the only one on good terms, mostly with Heather. They're kind of commiserating over Mac's death. This is such a pattern with Rachel. She freaks out, strikes out. She will then do this with Celine, the Beyonder. She's basically out of control, and it's clear that the X-Men can't really control her. It does seem like they should be a little more concerned, you know, because she does cause a lot of damage before she's able to sort of calm down after a while. Well, and they hear she's sitting in the plane feeling ashamed, being like, oh, I'm so sorry, and Kitty and Heather are basically like, yeah, you should be sorry. But then Charles Xavier is like, oh, don't worry, these needless recriminations, you could never have known. And I'm like, yeah, you could never have known. Why don't you stop doing this? But of course, Charles is just enabling her. Chuck and his telepaths, it doesn't always go so well. <laughs> Eventually, they get to where they're going, to Ungaway Bay, and all of a sudden, there's this two-page spread of this giant golden, well, yellow, really, immense, fantastical city. And this is where Paul Smith's Art Deco influences are really just gold here, or yellow. As the case may be. <laughs> um, yeah, and I like that it's really, not only is it very clearly Paul Smith, but it's also very clearly Asgard of the era, like the Walter Simonson-esque, Kirby-inspired Asgard. So coming out, they're greeted by a hooded figure who is Scott in his Asgardian garb without his visor. I gotta say, like, it's, hey, Scott, it's, it's awesome that you don't need to control your optic blast anymore that, that you're able to control them without your visor but you kind of look doofy without the glasses yeah he's like the opposite of the girl who takes off the glasses and is suddenly even more beautiful he takes off his glasses and he looks like a doof he kind of does yeah <laughs> um but doof aside poor rachel summers she's kind of torn up inside because this is i believe this is her first time meeting scott summers in person since she came back from days of future past scott does not know that she is his daughter from a possible future she's basically begged everyone not to tell him step forward rachel say something Something. Hi, I'm Rachel, your daughter from another timeline. It's what I want to do more than anything, except run away and hide. I should be happy. My Psyflash was wrong. He's whole and unharmed. But I'm crying inside because I can't stop remembering the moment he, the Scott Summers who was my dad, died. I can only imagine what that must be like, yeah. To have a second chance with your father, except he's not really your father. I also kind of feel like the circumstances are a little bit unfortunate. It's like years later, you're telling your grandkids about this important event in your life, and I finally saw my father! And he looked like a dude without his glasses. And he was wearing <laughs> Asgardian armor and a bunch of fur, and there was this big sort of yellow place cool city in the background. You know what? Let's just not worry about that part. The important part is I saw my father. So Scott says that the flame that they saw consume him actually healed him. And Xavier doesn't like that but his telepathy isn't really working here yeah so he can't really you know probe further he just sort of has to go well okay i'm i'm glad and yeah so they head inside and scott introduces the assorted x-men and alpha flight people to these eight asgardian dressed folks plus madeline Pryor or madeline summers i guess i should say yes and they're all like physically bigger like they've each gotten about a foot taller and of course they are wearing the most ridiculous 80s style asgardian clothes you've ever seen it's hoods horns loincloths fur trim, flowers and thorns. It's everything. All the good stuff, yeah. <laughs> but I really want to dress like that all the time. I, I, need a, I need a personal Asgardian 80s customer to just like hang out with me and consult with me every week. So they've clearly gotten more badass and awesome. Um, it kind of reminds me of an Invader Zim, how like uh, Urkin culture is based on, you know, the, the, the supremacy of the tallest until so you'll have like, you know, the, the two tallest that lead the entire race. It's kind of like that. They've each developed powers according to like one dominant trait of their personality. There's a guy who was a botanist and now he's he can magically grow plants. He's and his outfit is freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's like covered in roses and he's just got this sort of smirk on his face the whole time. It's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, the, the most significant one is Madeline herself, who's now, they also, some of them have superhero-ish names um, mm -hmm. and hers is Anodyne mm -hmm. and she's gained the ability to heal using these sort of golden flames. She can sort of fix uh, physical or psychological issues with people. And the first thing she does is cure Puck's dwarfism, which leaves him with a lot of constant pain. So she bathes him in the fires and 
brings him to normal height. Yeah, and his clothes all, you know, rip apart as he does. And he actually has trouble walking around because he's used to his center of gravity being much lower. But this is also kind of interesting for him because he's nursed a crush on Heather all this time in Alpha Flight. But one of his uh, drawbacks in his mind was that he was too short for her. So, hey, now he's the same height. This should go well, right? Right, exactly. Although I feel bad for the guy. It's like, dude, just just because you were short? Like, Heather Hudson's a pretty chill lady. I don't think she would care that much. Yeah, it seems like the more relevant fact is that her husband just died. You know, there is that. That's probably related, yeah. And so, yeah, she also goes and works her magic on Sasquatch and Aurora. She gives Sasquatch control of his transformations, taking away that rage. She sort of synthesizes Aurora and Jean-Marie into one whole personality. And this is when Shaman realizes that Snowbird isn't with them and that he's felt kind of out of it since they've entered this palace. So the characters start to worry, understandably, Mm because, you know, she was kind of messed up before on the plane. Mm -hmm. Wolverine and two of these upgraded human characters, the Berserkers, Pathfinder and Beastmaster, go to find her. Then they're left with this character named Cornucopia, who had originally been the group's cook. And now, of course, she conjures up a feast and gives everyone as guardian clothing. Which they look great in. Colossuses in particular. He's got like this sort of fur rough thing around his neck and shoulders. Yes, it's very dramatic. Yes, he he also looks a little self-conscious in it, which is great. (laughs) And the next thing Anodyne does is give Rogue control of her powers. Ever since her powers were triggered, she's been unable to touch another human being without risking, you know, throwing them into a coma. She's like, well, is is it going to work? And Northstar sort of grumpily volunteers to be the guinea pig. And I, I love this. Again, you just sort of see him slowly, grudgingly opening up to her. She touches him and it's fine. And so she just rushes forward and kisses him. And this is hilarious. Rogue literally goes, nothing is happening, which is funny in retrospect, realizing now that North Star is gay. Right. And if you look at the uh, expression on his face, he's like, oh, wait, what woman in face? How is thing? What is going on here? He just looks sort of panicked. It's, it's adorable. He kind of looks like Jughead. <laughs> he kind of does. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Rogue is just like ecstatic, understandably. And so, yeah, while all this is going on, uh, Xavier's talking to Scott and Matt and like because he's concerned about all of this and he's sure. and they're like hey scan our mind you know you can see that nothing weird is going on mm-hmm. that we're being totally upfront with you and he's like wait a minute there's not only two minds but a third and madeline's all blushy and scott's like wait what and it's because madeline's pregnant and here again i'm kind of like xavier's a dick here like blowing up madeline's spot like she doesn't even get to announce her pregnancy to her husband and not only does he ruin the surprise for cyclops but he says it in front of a whole group of people now i might be especially sensitive to this because i had a baby five months ago but you don't tell anybody until you're through the first trimester and he doesn't even ask he's just like oh you're pregnant huh look who's got a baby exactly (laughs) but they don't seem to mind they don't know and i mean i'm sure part of that is just that xavier is such a father figure to scott but yeah one of the things that comes out very quickly as they're talking about this is that madeline refers to the child as their son yes which of course rachel hears and is devastated because she didn't have a brother she was hoping if they were going to have a child that it would be her so she freaks out and runs away you see just this despair almost just how crushed rachel is and paul smith sells the shit out of that panel and on one hand you could say rachel why are you surprised you know you come to this past and your mother is dead like how did you think you would be born right but at the same time like it's just further confirmation that this life isn't the one that she knew a lot of the other characters in the meantime head over to you know continue the grand tour of this this asgardian citadel they're taken to the center of it where there's this magic fountain thing that's going to be referred to throughout the series as the fire fountain. Basically this huge pillar of light and it's beautiful the way that it's portrayed in the comics. It's just this huge beam of light. I think the way it's described is from the roof of the sky to the heart of the world and Paul mm-hmm. Smith's art really does sell that sense of scale. Just these tiny figures uh, in front of this gigantic bridge leading to this immense pillar. It's truly majestic. Heather Hudson sort of walks forward saying she's been called to it and a lot of her friends are like, uh, I, I don't know if this is a good plan. But she goes into the fire and comes out again about a foot taller and wearing the most badass freaking armor i love it so much oh yes the boots in particular are amazing i don't know how you get into those things but i don't even care (laughs) but the most important part of that is that now after being conflicted about whether she can lead alpha flight she really feels like she has the power to lead and this is uh also where we find out that this only calls to non-powered individuals Mm -hmm. that the people who have powers are already have their gift right like be they mutant powers or magical powers or whatever 
Okay, so leadership powers. What does that even mean? I think it's just kind of like, uh, you know, Dumbo's feather. She's got that extra boost of self-confidence where she could go in. Of course, the ironic part is five minutes after Puck was finally as tall as Heather, Heather is now about a foot taller than him again. <laughs> so is that height difference still going to be enough for him to be like, oh, okay, and sort of do the like, da, na, 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 yeah. like peanuts walking away thing? They never really touch it on here. So so anyway, at this point, the characters start considering the philosophical implications of all of this. And Nightcrawler's like, you know, it occurs to me if this thing can be spread to the rest of the world to give people these amazing powers based on the sort of thing they're most passionate about, then at that point, mutants won't be different anymore. We'll just be, you know, more people with powers and maybe we won't be discriminated against anymore. That would be nice, but of course it's X-Men, so nothing ever works out. So speaking of that, as this is all going on, all of a sudden Shaman's medicine bag, which is like the satchel that he can pull magic stuff out of, that's most of what he does Mm -hmm. uh, power-wise, starts unleashing these hordes and hordes of demons that are attacking him. They actually injure him quite badly, and a North Star and Aurora grab it, fly, and throw it far away. And unfortunately, Anodyne can't heal him. Right, and she's like, wait, but I can heal anybody, so what's what's going on here? This, This isn't good. The narration talks about how he might be dying, and of course it wouldn't be a Claremont comic unless it ended with something like, and with him, perhaps, a dream. Like, I've mentioned before that I kind of want my life to be a Bollywood musical so that anytime anything significant happens, hordes of people will just pour out of doors and windows and start dancing and singing. Kind of also want Claremont to follow me around narrating. (laughs) And with that, the last of the milk. Right, and like, oh man, I thought this was just a normal moment in my day, but this is really epic and heavy. Damn. And while I'm at it, I can get like Harry Gregson Williams to do the soundtrack. Absolutely. Why why not just throw all these together? You know, a Claremontian Bollywood Harry Gregson Williams film. With Asgardian armor. With Asgardian armor on everybody, including on the milk itself. (laughs) We, we, We got this. We can make this happen. Perfect. So yeah, that's where it switches from the first issue to the second, and so Mm -hmm. the setup is pretty much all in place now, Mm -hmm. and so the second is really all about figuring out what's going on and how that might not be so ideal. Yes, so we've got Talisman, who again is Shaman's long-lost daughter, recently joined Alpha Flight, and she's chasing with Kitty after Rachel through the caves. Yeah, there are these sort of caves underneath the Citadel. And she's musing, moments like this, I'd give anything for a pair of jeans and my hiking boots. My costume looks pretty keen, but it ain't the most practical of outfits. Which I kind of feel like you could say that about almost any superhero costume in the entire Marvel Universe. Yeah, it's like, get used to it, honey. (laughs) This is just how you do things. No one's going to take you seriously as a hero if you can walk straight. Yes. And so she and Kitty meet up. They find this sort of hidden sketchbook in this little alcove, and it's by uh, Paul Dominic, the guy from the beginning who was talking about magic for some reason, who's now the berserker named Master Builder. They're paging through it, and the, you know the drawings start out really sort of science fiction-y fantasy, like that very much that Asgardian feel. And they get worse as the pages continue. And not only is he, like, losing, you know, his skill, like, at the end, they look like something a child has drawn. One even has, like, a crude cat drawn in the front of the house. It's like, is this flowers for Algernon? Right. Like, I keep expecting to see a smiling sun in the corner. Yeah. it's, It's very strange. But yeah, so Talisman and Kitty are uh, continuing through the caves and just sort of talking. And Elizabeth, I know you're more familiar with Alpha Flight than I am, and you mentioned that Talisman's very much the Kitty pride of that team, right? Well, she's the young member. She's, you know, unfamiliar with superheroes. She's been estranged from her father. She's blamed him for her mother's death for years, so she's had nothing to do with him. You know, they were kind of thrown together by chance. She's joined the team, but she's definitely the newbie in the outfit. And so there's, there's some kind of cool bonding going on there as they continue. As they go along, she and Kitty end up finding a perfectly preserved ancient Viking village. The Citadel's got it all, man. It's got a bowling alley a little bit to the left, too. <laughs> it's this, like, this uh, very much out-of-time village full of, you know, longship-looking buildings and various runestones and stuff. And they actually find this one runestone that Talisman picks up, and she's like, I'm gonna check this out later. I don't know what this is, but I'm gonna check it out later. But it seems like this might be a clue. Jinkies! <laughs> so Rachel is there. She's in tears. She's furious. She's mad that Kitty has found her, but Kitty ends up comforting her, saying that maybe her presence will make this a better future for this world. Man, talking about awesome friendships, Kitty and Rachel, the friendship that they're starting to develop now that we're going to see more of later in Excalibur is one of my favorites. Absolutely. And what's really interesting here is that here, Kitty is kind of the stronger one who's always comforting Rachel. Later in Excalibur, it's like they flip where Kitty is kind of the insecure one who needs 
reinforcement. And Rachel is the one who kind of takes the big sister role. It almost seems like Rachel, you know, she's really flailing right now in continuity. Mm-hmm. But once she does, I'm not going to say get over her past because you mm-hmm. can never really get over something like that. She comes to terms with it. Yeah. Like at that point, she becomes this very, very confident, competent person. Like mm-hmm. I think more than many of the other characters who are X-Men related. Yeah, absolutely. She really comes into her own with her powers and her place in the world. And, and she's good. So anyway, they've all met up. So they start to head back. And all of a sudden, the Viking village starts to collapse. The cavern starts falling in on top of it. As everything kind of comes down around their ears, they're escaping by the fire fountain. And as they do that, Talisman brushes against the fire fountain, which causes this huge explosion. Talisman's powers are to disrupt magical items and power. So here is where they discover that the fountain is magical in origin. Right. So it's like, okay, we found a rune stone. Things are magical. Things are looking a little Asgardian, although only Miles has noticed that, not the characters have. (laughs) Come on, guys. Haven't you been reading Simon since Thor? Come on, Scott. You'd love it. It's starting to come together maybe a little bit of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And Kitty thinks the collapse was deliberate and that the spells, you know, must have been cast by somebody. Yeah, they're like, if there's magic, then clearly somebody made the magic, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, back in the feast hall, Anodyne's going around taking care of people. Like, Rock Shaper, one of the scientists who's been transformed, is kind of worried. And Madeline listens to what she has to say and says she'll take care of it. Actually, let's talk a little bit about Madeline and Scott. It's such a missed opportunity in the overall like X-Men universe because here, Madeline and Scott are such an awesome couple. They're just this loving, functional relationship that is unlike anything Scott's ever had. It's even different than what he had with Gene. Mm-hmm. You know, with Gene, there was always angst and his insecurities getting in the way. And here, they just seem perfectly in tune with each other. So happy to be prospective parents. Like, it, it's something that was totally trash later on. Really? Reading interviews, Chris Claremont is like still mad to this day that they did so much character assassination with her. Well, really, it's the reason why I hated Scott for years. It was like he not only, you know, married someone who looks just like his dead girlfriend, but then when Jean Grey comes back, he completely abandons Madeline and his son to go back to Jean and never even tells Jean at first that he was married. Right. And, you know, a lot of this was editorial fiat. They're like, okay, well, we're going to bring back Jean Grey. So clearly Scott needs to be back with her on this team of the original X-Men. Mm-hmm. So writer make it happen figure it out and it's too bad because again it was seemed like a very functional loving relationship that was trash and kind of forgotten but yeah so anyway uh, anodyne goes around she's going around helping people out of course and she um heads toward wolverine kitty's like oh i'm kind of worried about this i'm gonna follow her she sees uh, Anodyne healing Wolverine. She's like, wait, why would she heal him? He's got a healing factor. What, what is this even doing? Is something sinister going on? As she leaves, Wolverine's like, yeah, so basically she just burned the Berserker rage out of me. I'm now fully in control of myself. And Kitty's reaction at first is like, great, peachy keen, wonderful. If not for that Berserker, your mentor, Ogun, would have killed us both. And he replies, you saying girl I can't hack it as a man, only as a psycho. And Kitty apologizes. Yeah, you know, again, speaking of functional friendships. But here, he doesn't remember uh, how the search for Snowbird ended or how he got back to his room. So they realize that the Beastmaster could have been controlling that primal aspect of his personality. Right, that it's like literally an animalistic part that the guy who controls animals can control. Mm -hmm, And now that's gone. So, hey, point to Wolverine. Right. And so they're like, all right, we're a little worried here. So Wolverine and Aurora decide to go look for Snowbird again. And they eventually do find her sort of near the valley where um, that med- where Shaman's medicine bag ended up, where all those monsters are, like, fighting each other. Uh, and they find Snowbird, and she's all, like, withered and dying. And-, and to look at this panel, it is so creepy and gross. The way it is drawn, like, you don't even want to look at it. It just looks like she's dying and rotting. It's very effective. Yeah, like, just had all the life sucked out of her. Mm-hmm. Pathfinder and Beastmaster are still there. Um, they just sent Wolverine back, apparently. And they're like, hey, we wish we could help, but there's really no place in this new world for people like her, so we just need to put her out of her misery. Yeah. They're just there to kill her, basically. So Wolverine is like, there's a good shot of him with Lockheed being like, you're going to have to get through me and the dragon. It's kind of badass. Because, of course, it's this being a Claremont comic, like 10,000 things are going on at once. That's just how he does it. Rogue has changed into this, like, I think I would just call it a prom dress. Oh, my goodness. She suddenly swans out in this beautiful 80s-tastic, off-the-shoulder, ruffled prom dress with a rose in the center and asks North Star to dance. 
and he just sort of looks at her like, what, seriously? I, I don't dance. I don't I don't like I don't have positive emotion. And she's basically like, hey, I missed my senior prom because of my stupid powers. We're going to dance. After his teammates start needling him, he's like, well, fine, I'll do it just to spite you. And again, like as reluctant as Northstar is this entire time, it's just so heartwarming to see them together like this, to see them really bonding. Yeah, they really seem to get each other, both as being outsiders and just kind of having secrets about themselves. Again, if you're going for the interpretation that Northstar's uh, homosexuality was still known by the writer and a, a deliberate part of the story, just veiled, then at that point, it, it sort of adds another layer of interesting nuance to it. Like, she knows that this is by no means going to be a romantic connection, but it's just a really a way of her trying to bring him out of his shell in this sort of playful, silly, but still heartfelt way. Yeah, they're both kind of touchingly vulnerable together. So as this is all going on, because again, 10,000 Things at Once, Talisman brings that runestone that we mentioned earlier to uh, Sam, the guy who was moving crates in the plane and talking about Ursula K. Le Guin, and who's now sort of this archivist. Yeah, he like has all the knowledge and all the books. He's like the super librarian. Yes. He's like, okay, well, I'm checking this out. And so here's the weird thing. Normally with runestones from this era, you're they're dedicated to like, you know, Thor or Odin or the heroic gods. This one's dedicated to Loki. Maybe it's a clue. Jinkies again. <laughs> the other thing everybody's talking about is they're wondering what the price to pay for this gift is going to be. You know, Northstar's like, you know, nothing comes for free. What is the price? That's when Wolverine comes in with Beastmasters, Unconscious Body, and Snowbird and is basically like, this is the price right here. He's got Beastmaster, but Madeline is like... Where's Pathfinder? And Wolverine, I love this panel. Like, it's as he's taking his swig of booze, not even looking at the sort of comics camera, flying with the angels. So yeah, Snowbird is dying, and Sam acknowledges that the Fire Fountain's source is all magic. That means it will kill all the magical entities. Yeah, like it's going to not only pull the magic out of the world, it's going to pull the magic out of them in order to power itself. So that is the price, and now they have to decide whether they can accept that. And this turns into a good old-fashioned hero versus hero fight. Like, they all sort of square off and you know there are some characters who are like hey this is a terrible sacrifice but nonetheless it's worth it it's necessary well because with their powers they can essentially end world hunger they can end disease they can end clothinglessness you know all, all kinds of things yeah and i mean they can tr- basically by sacrificing the magical beings in the world make this utopia for everybody else so they immediately start to fight and they are squaring off we've got the berserkers with madeline shaman rachel colossus sasquatch puck they are for making the sacrifice sacrifice to help the world. And then on the other side, you have the characters who are like, no, this is too much to ask. This is just not right. This is not ethical. And that's Professor Xavier, Cyclops, Rogue, Kitty, Talisman, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, and Northstar. So the confrontation is great. Xavier says, there is but one way, Pyotr Nikulevich. Stand aside. And he says, Nyet, forgive me, sir, transforms into Colossus, but I will not. And he's got these sort of single tear going down his cheek. You can just see him gritting his teeth. He's terrified to defy his mentor, but he knows this is the right thing to do. And this is how you sell a conflict like this, you and, know? And they've really split in some, you know, long party lines. You've got Madeline and Cyclops facing off against each other. You've got Northstar and Aurora on opposite sides. So it really amps up the drama. The fact is, neither side is really fully wrong. Like, you can totally see where, where each of them is coming from. Well, the conflict comes from their internal ethical obligations and how what they feel is right and wrong. So it makes it a very organic conflict. Yeah, as opposed to something like, say, Avengers versus X-Men, where it's like, hey, that's our phoenix. Nuh-uh, it's our phoenix. Yeah. Okay, fine, let's punch each other. That made no sense. That made me so mad. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. But yeah, and so there's this there's this big brawl, and um, I think my favorite part is just a little background detail of Rogue still wearing her kind of prom dress, carrying Professor Xavier in his like tidy whitey looking new mutants uniform into battle. Yeah, that's amazing. She's his chariot. And so as all this is going on, Talisman goes and finds Master Builder and brings the notebook she found to him, like his his sketchbook, and she's like, "Okay, so what's the deal with this?" And he's angry and ashamed, and he finally admits that since he's been transformed, he can bring to life his previous sketches, but he can't come up with anything original anymore and it comes out that that's been going on with all the berserkers like Mm -hmm. they're all really amazing at anything that already exists but that that creative spark the ability to dream and imagine is gone it's it's essentially that is its own magic and that's what's being consumed by the fire fountain yeah well the thing that makes their humanity special in addition to the magical beings it's all being consumed by this fire fountain 
Kitty and Talisman show up to stop the fight, being like, hey, so here's some new information that may be relevant to this philosophical conflict. And then Loki shows. And uh, he's like, okay, guys, guys, come on. Have a care, manling. Thou art but a little god, while I am lord of the golden realm. Take not that tone with me. Moreover, master builder, I sense thine objections are not shared by the majority of thy fellows. For thy convenience, Paul Dominic, thy sake, should the whole world suffer? Think not, my friends, about what shall be lost here, but what is to be gained? And then Cyclops points out that only those who had powers previously would still be creative because they are not touched by the fountain, which they would again be feared and resented again for a different reason. Yes, like that thing Nightcrawler was saying, nope, that wouldn't be the case at all. Mm -hmm. Loki's like, we gods have ever known what is best for thee and thine, Cyclops. Why canst thou not trust me? And of course the answer is because Loki is known throughout all creation as the god of lies. Optic blast, optic blast. (laughs) And one thing I want to point out here about the Asgard stuff, you'll notice that Loki's saying a lot of these and thous and that sort of thing, and you don't see that anymore in Marvel Comics. Um, mm-hmm. When Straczynski brought Thor back after all the Asgardians were dead for a long time, that was a conscious decision to eliminate that. To have them talk archaically, yes, but not like they were in some kind of Shakespearean play for some reason. Because honestly, how does that even make sense? Like, they're they're Vikings. Why would they be sounding like they were British? I think it was really more an excuse for the letter to do really cool fonts. But yes, this is still very much in the era of the these and thous, and Loki is still very much Loki. You know, he's being very convincing, but it's also like, wait, your, your words are just kind of dripping villainy aren't they he always takes it over the top for being a master manipulator he always takes it like five steps too far right which is part of why i love him to be fair of course (laughs) (laughs) and so he's like well all right then uh you want to fight we'll give you a fight and these snow giants just sort of come up from being buried underneath uh, the snow nearby and where do they even come from are they just hanging out in canada i guess so it's like guys this isn't jotunheim this is this is the great white north i mean like the other great white north the one that doesn't involve frost giants and stuff. And meanwhile, the fire fountain is expanding to affect the whole world. Yeah, so like, uh, regardless of what decision they make, this is gonna happen. And so there's this continuing fight, and the giants are fighting all the X-Men in Alpha Flight, and uh, one of the giants, like, whacks Sam, the archivist, the librarian, like, halfway across the country. And Anodyne goes to save him. Uh, beyond being one of the berserkers, he's a longtime member of her crew, so she's very attached to him. Yeah. And she realizes, because they've rejected the gift, that her powers are no longer working. And so Loki, of course, shows up because he's always good at showing up exactly when he can make a deal with someone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's like, well, OK, so here's the deal. You said no, but if you do want to save him, I'll give you your powers back. But at that point, no take backsies. And there's this great panel where she's got tears running down her face and he takes her tear and kind of runs it across her cheek and reignites her powers. She heals Sam. All's right with the world. I should have known my sins couldn't be wiped away so easily. But my baby's innocent. He shouldn't have to pay for my mistakes. He wouldn't be the first. Maybe it's better this way. The poor thing will never know what he's missing. To him, clouds in the sky won't be dragons or horses or ships or castles. They'll just be clouds. Jeez, melodramatic much. <laughs> I know, I love it. It's just <laughs> Claremont, it's just Claremont being Claremont. And okay, so the other thing, again, I'm a big fan of Thor, especially this era of Thor. Mm-hmm. Simonson's Thor is my favorite run of anything ever. His prose is so purple, and it, it almost seems like Claremont's really adopting a lot of that, writing about the Asgardian stuff. Um, and so, yeah, they straight up do reject Loki's offer, and he's about to try to kill them all, and at that point, those who sit in shadow show up. So Madeline has been forced to accept this deal when there's literally a deus ex machina and the gods' gods show up. I think we should just kind of read this because it's an awesome exchange. We who live above in shadow have witnessed and judged and found thee wanting. Thy petition is denied. And Loki's just, no! The terms of our bargain were specific. A deed of goodness, a gift freely given. That I have done by giving these mortals the means to make their world a paradise. And when they said thee nay, thou forced them to thy will. Be that thy concept of freedom, of goodness. By words and deeds thou were to prove thyself worthy of our bounty. Instead, thou hast branded thyself most manifestly the opposite. Puling pathetic maggots, dost thou know what you have cost me? And then at this point, those who sit in shadow, like, one of their faces just appears, taking up the entire sky. Loki, stay thy wrath. Thou shalt harm no innocent. Thou shalt allow these thy guests to depart in peace, and further pledge, as Prince of Asgard, in thy father Odin's holy name, never do them harm, in this fear or any other. Fail in this, and thou shalt feel our vengeance. I so 
swear. Hadst thou but accepted their refusal in good grace, Odin's son, all would have been thine. Blame not the deeds of others for thy failure. The fault lies within thyself. Pompous windbag. Someday, somehow, there will be a reckoning. Mortals, my word hath been given, and contrary to popular belief, I shall not be forsworn. But know you have made an enemy this day, whose reach is as long as his memory, and who prides himself on returning blow for blow in full measure. You have refused my most generous favor. I therefore take it back, together with every benefit derived from it. And at that point, all of the characters are transformed back, so Puck becomes small again, everyone loses their their badass abilities that were, you know, based on the single personality trait that they tend to have. Cyclops' optic blasts start shooting out of control, Rogue, of course, gets her powers back, can no longer touch anyone. The writing and the art really do sell what a big sacrifice this was, because these characters had had basically their, their fondest wishes granted. And what I love here is that the, the problem isn't that they didn't accept the gift, it's that, that Loki was so rude that he couldn't accept their refusal politely. Yeah, it's clear that those who sit above in shadow, if Loki had just said, hey, here's an awesome thing, and they said, nah, we're good, and he said, okay, then that would have been enough. Like, Loki would have been considered virtuous at that point. It's always his own ego and his own, you know, sense of entitlement that trips him up. Oh, Loki, you wacky Lofison. <laughs> um, Shaman's trying to uh, sort of be comforting, talking to Heather. We can yet make a difference, Heather, as heroes and people. Loki's way was a quick and easy fix. Ours will be longer and harder. But I've ever believed the best things are those we earn rather than what we're given. So now there's a blizzard on its way, so they're packing up and preparing to leave. Yeah, like this whole Citadel thing is starting to fall apart, because without Loki's magic to maintain it, it's, it's disappearing. It's being destroyed. And here, Heather and Northstar kind of have a good, a nice exchange. You know, Northstar is very mercurial. He has been kind of on and off with the team. She's reconciling. They're, they're reconciling with each other. And he basically says, hey, you know, I don't approve of Aurora and Sasquatch's relationship. Understandably. But I'm going to respect it, and I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go find my own happiness. And this is, I think, the second time uh, Northstar has quit in a very brief period of time. So he's almost kind of pulling a sunfire here. But, you know, he's Canadian, so he's a polite sunfire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's kind of a dick. But at the end of the day, he really does respect Heather. And I really kind of enjoy the relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of what sells her her leadership as, as legit. It's kind of like Wolverine respecting Cyclops. Well, in this era, anyway, when you have the jerk respecting the leader, you know that leader's got to be worth their salt. They're about to head out, and then they realize, wait a minute, Rachel Summers is gone. Where's she? I am so shocked. You mean Rachel freaked out and ran off? She did. She did. <laughs> um, and so Cyclops volunteers to go after her. And, you know, at this point, it's kind of not clear whether he knows that she's his daughter. I mean, there's certainly been some, some implication, but none of the X-Men have explicitly told him. And eventually, Scott does find Rachel, and she's debating what to do. Like, do I tell my dad who I am? I'm, I'm having a really hard time here. What way do I go with this? He says, I'm told you're from the future. A future. We won't know if it's the future till we get there. And by then it'll be too late. So I worry. My dad, he used to say, as long as you're alive, it's never too late. And by then it'll be too late. So I worry. My dad, he used to say, as long as you're alive, it's never too late. Did your father die in that future? All the X-Men died. You know, you remind me an awful lot of someone. That good or bad? Good. She was very dear to me. And when she died, all the light, the joy went out of my life. A part of me will always miss her. I never imagined I'd ever be as happy and fulfilled again until I met Madeline. This isn't the same, but that doesn't mean it can't be as good or maybe even better. My mom had a saying, everybody deserves a second chance. Smart lady. Yeah, when they made my folks, they broke the mold. Funny, I was just thinking much the same thing about you. And then Rachel thinks, I'm not going to tell him. All of a sudden, I have a feeling I don't need to. And it's great. And I mean, I, I don't know. I, I kind of get the impression that Scott does know at this point that he's basically leaving it to her to decide whether to bring it up. If Scott has a brain in his head, it feels like he should know. I mean, here's a girl from the future who looks like Jean, who talks about her dad is dead because all of the X-Men died. Like, it seems like he should be able to connect the dots. Okay. I mean, they're going to retcon this a little bit after. And I think in, in some of the issues we'll be coming up to soon and make it so Scott didn't know. But I really like to think he did here. I think that makes it a, a really emotionally satisfying scene mm -hmm. they do walk off very arm in arm like very affectionate for two people who have apparently never met each other right and so they all leave they fly away in puck's plane and the citadel sort of fading away and vanishing but the uh panels cut to a rose a single perfect rose that remains there 
The captions describe it, a reminder that humanity alone carries within itself the power to create paradise on Earth, on its own terms, by its own efforts, without the gifts or machinations of greedy gods, which, for better or worse, is how it should be. The end. And that's how we uh, we leave off. So yeah, this is it's only two issues, but they are two giant, giant issues, I should point out. There's a lot of story in here, and man, I was really pleased to see, like, reading this again. And the last time I read it, I was I was much younger. It totally holds up. It really does. Between Paul Smith's art and like the major emotional character arcs, I'm really kind of surprised that there was so much in this for a two-issue miniseries that isn't part of the main series, because it really does a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel like if you're going through x-men of this era like you really owe it to yourself to have that be part of that experience Mm -hmm. so this wasn't actually the only x-men alpha flight series i didn't realize this until uh we were starting the research for this episode but there was also a 1998 two-parter that was written by ben robb and john cassidy yes that john cassidy with art by cassidy and this is sold as a lost tale of the x-men in alpha flight and on a whole, it's cute. It's kind of like fan fiction that they wanted to write. Um, Yeah, it takes place before uh, The Gift does. Yeah, I think it's between, you know, Wendigo and The Gift. Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you said, it's, it's cute. Like we see, uh, I think my favorite part of it is that we see Kitty and Colossus's first date. Yeah, you see classic Kitty. She's going through all of her clothes, throwing them around frantically, trying to find the perfect outfit. Yeah, and like Nightcrawler gets a rose to give to Colossus that he can give to Kitty. And, you know, he's sort of their chaperone on the date. So he's seeing an Errol Flynn movie while they're out together being all awkward and adorable. What's funny is that Peter has apparently decided that the perfect outfit is like business casual so he kind of looks like he's about to turn in some tps reports and then kitty comes down the stairs basically looking like a very young high school student so it's incongruous the pairing of them it makes it so clear that he's like 10 years older than her <laughs> yeah it was um jim shooter might have had a point as far as mandating their breakup in secret wars i suppose but yeah i mean you know the plot's pretty thin basically the evil canadian government that we've seen so many times is selling some of james mcdonald hudson's tech to it turns out baron strucker in hydra um, he's the guy that was in the Xavier Magneto Israel flashback issue a while back. He had the Satan Claw, which is my favorite part. It's basically a glove. I just need to give all of my clothing uh, dramatic names from now on. Um <laughs> Yeah, and he's, of course, part of Hydra, and you see him, and the art for this is amazing in that he just looks like he's rotting from the inside out. He looks disgusting. Yeah, he's super gross. Yeah. You know, eventually, Alpha Flight shows up after the X-Men are all kidnapped by Hydra's robot men guys, and all of a sudden, we see them in the second issue fighting against the original black and yellow five X-Men. Because, of course, Charles Xavier is like, let's make sure you're ready for battle. To the danger room! I kind of feel like he does that with, does that with everyone. Like, you know, have uh, have you ever considered uh, your personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, I don't know. We'll have that conversation after we head to the danger room! I feel like Cassidy just really wanted to do that splash page of the original X-Men team and Alpha Flight facing off. Yes. And yeah, so after that, Alpha Flight goes after the X-Men and busts them out, and there's a big fight and that's basically it i mean it's it's very inconsequential yeah the thing that was really of note to me uh there's a fun call out to the fans at the end of this where it's mac and heather and she's wearing a shirt that says where the heck is high river which is the t-shirt basically the entire outfit that she wears in alpha flight number one Oh, that's awesome. I didn't I didn't realize that at all. Yeah, yeah. So that further points to this is just, you know, the team has been disbanded, but they are coming back together. So yeah, that's that second series. And I guess that's uh, pretty much all the coverage we were going to do. But we have some questions. So Ronanfish asks on Tumblr, aren't Snowbird's powers because she gets power from the great magical beasts of Canada? I think that's why she's affected so quickly in the X-Men versus Alpha Flight mini. In the mini, it's just because she's magical in general. Her power, she's the child of the Inuit goddess Nelvana and a human male created to battle the magical great beast of Canada. Like you do. So she can change into a white version of any animal native to the Canadian Arctic, real or mystical, since that's where Nelvana has dominion. In the Marvel Universe, Canada's borders are magical rather than just political, hence all the Wendigos turning human as soon as Captain America herded them across the U.S. border recently in Amazing X-Men. Yeah, that story is so gloriously ridiculous. That's World War Wendigo. And I I just love the idea that, like, okay, here's the border crossing, and it, there's this huge magical barrier also because of the great beasts and the old gods and stuff. 
<laughs> yes, please turn in your passport and uh, try to avoid, you know, killing everybody as Wendigos. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so what else do we have? We have David Wynn via Tumblr. Apologies if this has already been answered. I have a really terrible memory. We know that Rachel's favorite ex-person is Cyclops, but who is Miles's? Oh, David Wynn. So uh, this, for those of you who don't know, this is actually our artist back before he was our artist. This is an old question, I think. I go back and forth. I mean, I, I feel kind of sheepish because I feel like I spend so much time on X-Men, I should have a clear favorite, but I kind of don't. Past favorite characters I've had, uh, those have been Archangel. Now, specifically Archangel, not just Angel, but when he's Archangel. I okay. think he's fascinating. Uh, Rogue and Longshot. Um, I also really enjoy Dr. Nemesis, but I don't connect with him the way I do those others. Honestly, I'd be a little concerned if anyone connected all that much with Dr. Nemesis. No offense, I Spurrier, I think you're great. But I think if I had to pick a single character of all of those, I'd probably lean toward Longshot. Really? I, I, I would. I mean, I know he's ridiculous, and I think that's actually part of why, because I like ridiculous. But what I really enjoy is sort of the moral nature of his powers. Like, he's got these luck powers, but if he doesn't think he's doing the right thing for the right reasons, mm -hmm. then they stop working. And so his powers sort of enforce his personality, and I think that's just a fascinating concept. Plus, he's just all, like, lighthearted and innocent and fun and gets all the ladies in, in, in a non-creepy way, generally. He's fun, and I think he's one of those characters that I just it would really be fun to be and that's part of why I like him I do have a certain affection for him from the era of the late 80s where he's just kind of getting to know like what it's like to be on earth and they're eating breakfast one morning and he refers to the eggs as "Ooh, delicious we're gonna have some unborn baby birds and everyone else is like ew get this away from me <laughs> so those sort of moments I always thought were pretty funny oh yeah totally so okay we do have um, some thanks for some of our wonderful Patreon supporters one of the uh, benefits of being a Patreon supporter at certain levels is getting to be thanked by any number of fictional characters. So this time we're going to bring back our buddy the God of Lies. Those who sit above in shadow were fools not to see the merit, the virtue of mine actions. Methinks I shall use mine as guardian divinity to begin again. Surely shall they grant that Loki is a hero after these new berserkers arise. Rebecca Perkins, Michael Pittman, thou art now small gods thine selves. Step forth with the divine powers of, I don't know, uh, fish tank installation and driver's education. Quintessential defenestration in Maya, thee and thine shall forever be legends as the berserkers of technical writing and state capital memorization. So mote it be. Excellent. <laughs> so anyway, we are all out of time, but Elizabeth, thank, thank you so much for jumping in for Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I was extremely flattered. And Elizabeth, where can people find you online if they'd like to? Uh, I do have a personal blog, uh, elizabeth.wordpress.com. I'll give you guys a link that you can put in the uh, article. So, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and were produced by Bobby Roberts, who is the producer of the Geek Remixed trilogy of pop culture mashup albums, and is also co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes of Rachel and Miles come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, which is rachelandmiles.com, which you can also check out for all kinds of extra content, from companion posts and essays and fan art to Rachel's new X-Men Evolution recaps and lots of other stuff. And we are completely listener-supported, and everything we do is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. Guys, thank you, as always, so much. Uh, both the ones thanked by Loki and everybody else. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. Meanwhile, next week, Loki is going to waste no time in having his revenge on the X-Men, as Storm becomes the goddess of thunder, Mirage becomes a Valkyrie, and Cannonball remains a nice young man you can be proud to bring home to your dwarven dad. Yeah.